Hello, welcome to Freaking Out about Cincinnati's opening day with Randy Freaking, the podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. Cincinnatians have been celebrating the opening day of Cincinnati Reds baseball since 1869, so we have a lot to cover. After all, we are the only city that is guaranteed to start the season at home every year, and so we have more parties to cover than any other city. We have had opening day celebrations affected by an assassination attempt on President Ronald Reagan, the assassination of Martin Luther King, World Wars, Prohibition, the Great Depression, and catastrophic floods on the Ohio River, while also seeing historic games occur on opening day, such as Hank Aaron tying Babe Ruth's legendary home run record and Hall of Fame pitching duels. We've also seen a series of influential people who have helped make our opening day a -a one-of-a-kind holiday. We will explore all of that and more in Freaking Out About Opening Day. I would like to give you an overview of Episode 1 and upcoming episodes so that you will want to hang with me. In this episode, Episode 1, we will give you a broad overview of why the holiday is so important to our city. I will illustrate how the holiday has remained amazingly similar over 150 years and why that is so true. We will then focus on what I call historical markers or checkpoints and notable individuals who have themselves become markers. For example, 1869 is a historical marker because that's when it all began. We will then discuss other date markers such as 1886, 1920, 1971, and 1985, and people who have been key to the holiday. Frank Bancroft, the father of opening day, the Finley Market officials, Larry McPhail, and Marge Schott, and discuss why they are markers, and we will fill in the blanks to give you an interesting overview of why opening day has developed into such a party for young and old alike, and for baseball and non-baseball fans. It has truly been a remarkable journey, and no single person has witnessed everything, although some have tried. After all, Charles Reichel was 102 years old when he attended his last opening day game in 1938. Mr. Reichel is believed to be the oldest person to ever attend an opening day game in Cincinnati. In upcoming episodes, we will drill down more specifically on aspects of the holiday. John Arardi will be one of our special guests. John is a former reporter and columnist for the Cincinnati Enquirer and co-author of several books on baseball. He is a two-time winner of the Ohio Sports Writer of the Year Award and a National Associated Press Award winner, and we will discuss the development of the party aspect of opening day, starting with the contributions of Frank Bancroft. I will bet that, unless you've read my book or John's book on opening day, you've never heard of Frank Bancroft. Anyway, That is an episode to look forward to, and I just hope we have enough time. Greg Rhodes will join us to discuss opening day first and special occasions that have occurred on opening day. Greg is the former executive director of the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame and Museum and now serves as a Reds team historian and has authored or co-authored six books on the Reds. He has twice won one of the Society for American Baseball Research's Top Awards, the Sporting News Sabre Baseball Research Award. Our third guest will be Howard Wilkinson. Howard and I will talk about the myths 
that surround opening day, including whether and why the Reds have the unique privilege to always open the season at home. In 2012, the Society of Professional Journalists inducted Howard into the Cincinnati Journalism Hall of Fame, and you can hear him regularly on WVXU. Our fifth episode will explore the history surrounding opening day in much more detail. When I talk about the history of opening day, I don't mean only Cincinnati Reds history. Instead, I mean the history of the holiday that has developed since 1869 and the local, national, and world events that have coincidentally surrounded and sometimes impacted the big opening day celebration. Like the Depression, like the assassination of Martin Luther King. Of course, we won't leave out memorable games that have been played on opening day, nor the noteworthy people associated with the great holiday. Speaking of Howard Wilkinson, let's really get into episode one. In all of my research, I think Howard gave us the greatest quote about the importance of opening day, and I would like to use it to start the first episode. Howard wrote this in 2012. Why does this opening day and the game it represents have such a hold on Cincinnati? Because it is an heirloom, a thing passed from generation to generation to generation. It is a time-worn Bible. Grandma's oak and china closet, the sepia-toned daguerreotype photograph of a great-great-grandfather who fought with the Union Army at Shiloh. It is a gift from one generation to another. The gift of baseball, with all its pleasures and disappointment. It's a heart-stopping moment, and even its occasional tedium. A gift from one generation to the next. A gift of memories to be shared by the old with the young. That's what Howard said just eight years ago. Opening day traditions have evolved. Yet, over 150 years... They have remained amazingly constant. Baseball is a unique sport in that if players from the very earliest years of baseball just after the Civil War could come back to life, they would see a game that is strikingly similar to the one they had played years before. Sure, there have been tweaks to the rules here and there. For example, the designated hitter in the American League, that did not exist back in the 1800s, but the essential nature of the sport has remained constant. At the same time, our opening day celebrations have certainly become larger and more festive, but if fans from the very earliest celebrations of opening day in the Queen City could come back to life, they would see a celebration of the arrival of spring that is eerily similar to the tally-ho parades, marching bands, and early Finley Market parades. It is still a day for families and friends to come together, united in a common love of baseball and springtime. The game and the celebrations have remained so continual while the country and world have changed so much. I talked about baseball players who could come back to life and not notice much difference in the sport they loved. But think about 19th century citizens. If they returned today, they would see a completely different world. They would not recognize our current culture or understand the complexities of modern life. Everything except for baseball would be different. My goal is to summarize the evolution 
of our traditions in the context of events that were happening in Cincinnati, the nation, and the world. It is delightful to find out that opening day has been surprisingly impervious to the kind of cultural transformation that has affected so many of our other societal institutions. Cincinnatians have worked hard to protect the unique and treasured spectacle represented by opening day. What has surprised me the most in consuming opening day history is how I now look at the holiday. As a lifelong fan of baseball, and particularly of the Reds, I have always tended to focus my attention on the results of each game. Up one day, down the next. If we lose today, we hope for a win tomorrow. As I researched the years in which I had attended openers, all the way back to my first opener in 1967, I was surprised by how often I could not remember who won or lost, who had been the star, or if anyone had been a GOAT. Sure, there are some opening days that will always live in my memory. Among those are my first in 1967, the night in 1994 when ESPN and MLB tried to dictate that Cincinnati not have an opening day, but rather an opening night, and a day in 1996 when umpire John McSherry died on the field moments after the national anthem. Other than the most recent years, I have long since forgotten the game results. As a fan who hangs on every pitch, I was amazed at what I was reading about the games. Why didn't I remember anything about most of those games? As I was researching for my book on opening day, Cincinnati's 150-year opening day history, the hoopla started with a parade, which, by the way, is available at openingdaybook.com. I read an article by Cliff Radel in the Enquirer. He pointed out the obvious. Here is what Mr. Radel said in 2013. Quote, In the retelling and the remembering of that special day, time will sharpen the focus. Those opening day memories will come down to what truly matters. They become a celebration of not who you saw play, but who you were with. Cliff Radel's column hit me like a lightning bolt. The holiday in Cincinnati draws people not because of the game, but rather because of the people. What do we remember? We remember who we celebrated the holiday with much more than the games themselves. In my case, our family has celebrated opening day since at least the 1950s after my father returned from World War II. The stories about other families enjoying opening day always seem to mirror our family's story. The Cincinnati Enquirer archives are full of tales about families and friends who regularly celebrated the opener with each other. From the late 1800s and now in the early 2000s, the storyline has not changed. Indeed, most of the media coverage around opening day in Cincinnati is about the people, not the game. While many pregame and hot stove conversations over the long winter are focused on the Reds and how they might do during the opener or the season, the real enjoyment on the opener comes from catching up with family members and friends who we may only see on those other holidays that are recognized by the rest of the country. This is why opening day is so often compared to Christmas 
in Cincinnati. During our busy lives, opening day is special not because of the game itself, but we can share it with people we love. But let's get going. Opening day, of course, began with the very first all-professional baseball game, way back in 1869, and it occurred right here in Cincinnati at Union Grounds. Union Grounds was located on the land now occupied by the Cincinnati Museum Center, just west of I-75. The Red Stockings were the first ever all-professional team, and they played the first game on May 4, 1869, managed by the father of professional baseball, Harry Wright. As I was doing my research for my Cincinnati's 150-year opening day history book, I almost fell out of my chair when I learned that the first opening day parade coincided with that game. Well, sort of anyway. Stephen Gushoff, in his book, The Red Stockings of Cincinnati, Baseball's First All-Professional Team, explained how the players arrived at the ballpark. Quote, Harry Wright's boys rode out to the Union grounds in a caravan of fancy, ribbon-adorned carriages, behind which followed hundreds of merry cranks, eager to see whether their boys could measure up to the first real competition of the season. The Red Stocking players strode confidently into the Union grounds and onto the emerald-hued field, resplendent in their crisp white flannel uniforms and blazing scarlet hosiery, marching nine abreast across the field like soldiers in formation on their way into battle, unquote. And so it was that I came with the subtitle of my book, The Hoopless Started with a Parade. Now, as you may know, the Red Stockings went eight, undefeated in 1869, a feat never matched, but we digress from the holiday. Sorry about that. Okay, so there wasn't really an official parade on opening day in 1869. So how did the parade that we now know as the Finley Market Parade happen? For convenience sake, I am going to refer to the Reds, even though they were called the Red Stockings in the early years and later the Red Legs for a time in the 1950s during the era of McCarthy. So let's start with 1886, the second marker in our history. Between 1870 and 1885, the newspapers of the time certainly proclaimed the arrival of baseball every spring in banner headlines. The national pastime is back, would scream the paper. After all, baseball in those days shared the sports pages only with horse racing and boxing. But it was not until 1886 that the Reds first tried to make opening day a special day on the calendar. On April 17, 1886, boy, it would be nice to start the season that late, wouldn't it? Baseball fans opening their newspaper were greeted by an ad announcing something special in conjunction with the first championship game, a 90-minute pregame concert by one of the great orchestras of the era, as well as a day dedicated to female fans. You know, Cincinnati had a thriving music culture in 1886. In fact, a Cincinnati Music Center half dollar was minted in 1936 to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the city's musical heritage, 
though Cincinnati was known for its music community as far back as the 1870s. The well-known orchestra, known as the Reed Band, had played before games in the past, but never on the first day of the season. The orchestra was very popular among both the socially elite and blue-collar fans. Amazingly, it became the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra in 1895. Another effort to delight the fans came in the form of greeting patrons as they passed through the turnstiles. But the greeting did not come from friendly attendance. Instead, fans were treated to the melodious sounds of canaries in cages. Undoubtedly, this has to be one of the most unique welcomes in the history of sport. It is not clear why canaries were chosen, but the presence of these warbling birds was certainly a welcome change from previous years when fans simply filed past harried ticket collectors. The addition of the orchestra and the welcome given to ladies, 200 attended, by the way, which was noteworthy in those days, had the desired effect as a total of 5,460 attended the 1886 opener, which was the Reds' largest home crowd ever. The idea of a pregame concert was a splashing success. And we are not talking about the type of pregame celebrations that occur today where fans are hardly in attendance. No, with a game time of 3 p.m. back in the 1800s, the team promoted a 90-minute pregame concert by some of the greatest orchestras of the time, and the grandstands would actually be filled to capacity by 1.30. You ask, what a long day. Arrive by 1.30, a full-blown concert, and then a game? Well, remember, baseball games in that era rarely lasted longer than 90 minutes compared to today's three-hour marathons, and so fans spent the same time at opening day in those days with a 90-minute orchestral concert and a nine-inning game as we would spend for just the game today. The pregame concert as part of opening day lasted for most of the next 50 years. And, of course, there was good reason not to dawdle along in those days. Most people did not have electric lights, and fans had to get home by dark and have dinner under candlelight. There was no time to waste. The next significant development for opening day was the hiring of Frank Bancroft as the Reds' business manager in 1892. Bancroft would later be recognized as the father of opening day, and we will talk about him in more detail in our episode with John Erardi. You know, for the first 26 days of April 1893, there was not a single day in which it did not snow or rain in Cincinnati. Nonetheless, on the morning of April 27, the Enquirer declared that it was a safe bet that the first game of the season would go on because Bancroft realized the marketing value of opening day. Bancroft began to put his stamp on the importance of the opener by inviting dignitaries and a celebrity to the game. This had not been done in the past. The invitation list included Ohio Governor William McKinley, who would be elected the 25th President of the United States 
He invited the governor's entire staff, Cincinnati's Mayor John Mosby, the city's police chief, many other officials, and Jeffrey Lewis, who was a well-known female actress. The guests were invited to witness a, quote, splendid opening to the season that included the renowned John C. Weber Band for a 90-minute program of, quote, popular music, unquote. And just before game time, the Reds tread across the field in jackets of dazzling red, redder than the reddest garment ever seen on the local ground, as reported by the Enquirer. Never before had either the Reds or the Red Stockings, or any sport for that matter, been featured on the front page of the paper. In the past, baseball stories were usually relegated to a portion of a page in an 8- to 16-page newspaper that covered boxing and horse racing as well. But for a welcome change in this year, in the far-right column on page 1 in 1886, the Enquirer gushed, quote, Cincinnati has not had an opening like this in years. Nothing was missing to make the happiness of local baseball lovers complete. Their cup was brimful and running over the sides, unquote. You know, Bancroft had been a circus promoter before joining the Reds, and so he immediately tried to create a buzz around the holiday. His next act occurred the following year with a ceremonial first pitch and a parade route that was advertised in advance. Parades, I will note, were started in 1890, but Bancroft's marketing savvy made them a precursor of today's parade. As I mentioned, the parade route was published in the newspaper so fans could choose their favorite viewing spot to see the Reds and Chicago Colts. They were called Colts back in the day, not the Cubs. They would ride in open carriages from the Gibson Hotel, a popular hotel throughout downtown. The Enquirer reported on the excitement once again. Quote, That the city has a very severe attack of baseball fever was attested not only by the crowds of people in front of the Gibson House and all along the advertised line of march, but by the great number of people who journeyed through rain to the Cincinnati ballpark, unquote. As you know, the ceremonial first pitch is a long-standing ritual of baseball. No one knows who started the ritual, but there are newspaper accounts about it dating back to 1890. In the years after 1890, the guest threw the ball from his or her place in the grandstand to the umpire, or in some cases to the pitcher. Today, the first pitch is often delivered from the pitcher's mound to the catcher behind home plate. Bancroft began his own first pitch tradition on April 19, 1894. Governor McKinley, made a few remarks after the band's open-air concert. The remarks were another custom started by Bancroft. But then he tossed a brand-new baseball to the umpire, and the umpire shouted, Play ball! to begin the first game in League Park. This ritual would be continued in subsequent years by the Reds and by many other professional baseball teams. While the crowd could not foretell the historical significance of McKinley's pitch, the fans went home happy after left fielder Bug Holiday, what a name that is, hit the first Cincinnati Grand Slam on opening day, 
With Holiday's help, the Reds beat the Chicago Colts 10-6. Let's move a little bit further to 1895. Bancroft made other splashes before that opener by having the Reds make a trolley car circuit of the city instead of riding in carriages. In a series of articles about the start of the season to promote the day, the Enquirer introduced the phrase, quote, opening day, unquote, though the term did not catch on until years later. One article compared the start of baseball season to major celebrations in Europe. Quote, what the English Derby is to the land of roast beef and plum pudding, what the Prix de Paris is to Parisians, opening day in baseball is to about seven-tenths of the citizens of this great and glorious country. The opening of the championship baseball season is a matter second only in importance to the nation's great holiday, the anniversary of our independence. The citizens of adjacent territory for miles around are wrapped up in the success of the team in their nearest big city. Cincinnati is particularly favored in this way. The grand old Queen City is the metropolis of the state, and most of the citizens of Ohio look upon its club as their club, unquote. A drawing that accompanied that article depicted the parade that would take place that afternoon on the trolley, with Bancroft leading the procession in the first trolley car. The parade that day was an unqualified success, judging from the streets being full of fans shouting greetings from front doors and hanging out windows. The crush of the crowd was such that one man was killed on the Plum Street Bridge and another had a broken leg on the way to the ballpark. The next year, Bancroft, ever the promoter, came up with the idea of a giveaway on opening day. I don't know if the Reds do that these days. They do giveaways on other days. I think they sell enough tickets. In addition to the trolley car parade introduced a year earlier, the team gave away gender-specific souvenirs to all patrons. As the gates opened, every man and boy was given a rooter's button, and every woman and girl was given a rudimentary photograph of the 1869 Red Stockings. It was the first time the Reds promoted a game with a giveaway, a practice that is commonplace throughout professional baseball today. Bancroft has such a special role in our opening day history that John Arardi and Greg Rhodes dubbed him the father of opening day in their 2004 book called simply Opening Day. And there is no question that they are correct. Without Bancroft, it is doubtful that Cincinnati's opening day traditions would be any different from other cities. And you have to understand No city in any professional sport has a celebration of the first game of the season like we do in Cincinnati. Now, I'm going to do a little side note here. Between 1903 and 1920, the team owners decided to forego the official parade. Nonetheless, Bancroft had firmly planted opening day as a holiday. And of course, we live in a German city and we know how serious those Germans can be, so the tradition continued on 
in a smaller scale with tally-ho wagons. The notion that opening day was a day for partying began on April 11, 1907. For decades, there had been rooters groups for fans, but the absence of an official parade opened the door for the rooters to take a more active part in planning festivities on their own. These groups began to stage their own unsanctioned marches through downtown on the way to the ballpark. Their processions were led by tally-ho wagons filled with fans dressed in costumes and blowing noisemakers as if it was New Year's Eve. The tally-hos often carried bands that played along the way, and reliable reports indicate that the wagons stopped frequently at local drinking establishments along the route. Now, the next significant marker along our journey is the end of World War I and the debut of the Finley Market Association Parade in 1920. Following the end of World War I, opening day in Cincinnati saw ever-increasing attendance, most likely a result of the World Series Championship in 1919. The day remained a half-day holiday, but the revelry that had characterized the openers before the war was somewhat subdued for several years. A number of developments in the early 1920s affected the festivities. These included the beginning of Prohibition, the fallout from the infamous Black Sox gambling scandal in 1919, labor strife, and the ever-increasing use of automobiles. The most significant happening after war, as it affected our holiday, was the birth of a new rooters group based at Finley Market. Finley Market was founded in 1852 and is a public market in our over-the-Rhine neighborhood, now known simply as OTR. The organizers conducted their first march to the ballpark on April 14, 1920. This first parade consisted of all of one band, one horse-drawn wagon, and the merchants of the market marching to Crosley Field. Little did the organizers anticipate that the group would mark its 100th parade in 2019 with over 200 floats, bands, etc. Suffice it to say that 1920 was a start of an opening day tradition in Cincinnati that is second to none. Now, in truth, the size of the parade waxed and waned between 1920 and 1970. And according to Kevin Lucan of the Finley Market Association, the parades often just resembled a well-organized pub crawl. The next marker is 1935. This is really an incredible part of the entire story of opening day. In the midst of the Great Depression, baseball attendance throughout the country declined simply because of the dire financial times. In Cincinnati, though, opening day kept its grip on the community and served as a respite from the hard times. Now, believe it or not, in 1935, it was the horror of horrors. The National League schedule makers decided the Reds' monopoly on opening day had lasted long enough. 
the league released a preliminary schedule for 1935 showing the Reds beginning the season in Pittsburgh rather than Crosley Field. That's incredible. A new pirate ownership group had petitioned the league for the opportunity to host a real opening day of their own as they had historically always played their first game on the road. Now, fortunately, the Reds had a volatile general manager at the time, and his name was Larry McPhail. McPhail protested immediately. He went to the schedule makers and argued that it was a matter of simple economics. The country was in the middle of the Great Depression, and the opener in Cincinnati was a guaranteed sellout. So both teams would benefit from their share of the gate receipts. Why would you change anything? Besides that, the Reds were financially strapped. Now, sports writer Tom Swope of the preeminent sports publication at that time, the Sporting News, chimed in and made what is thought to be the first claim that the Reds deserved to host the opener because Cincinnati was a city where professional baseball was born. We will explain that claim in more detail in our episode with Howard Wilkinson. You know, thankfully, McPhail's challenge proved to be successful as the league relented by proposing a compromise. Yes, Cincinnati would be given the privilege of hosting the first game, but they would have to travel by train after the game to Pittsburgh for the second game of the season. Powell Crosley Jr., the Reds' owner at the time, and McPhail had ensured that the tradition would continue. All of us who celebrate this unique holiday owe a debt of gratitude to McPhail and Crosley. Had they not taken this stand in 1935, our opening day tradition of always opening at home likely would have been lost. The next significant marker took place in 1971. Although the Reds had settled comfortably into Riverfront Stadium during the summer of 1970, April 5, 1971 marked the first opening day at the new location, and the parade had to follow a different route. We needed a different map. Instead of proceeding west from Finley Market to Crosley Field, the Grand Marshal led the marching bands and floats south on Race Street and then west on 5th Street, past Fountain Square. As fans lined up on Race Street in OTR, many saw buildings that were the nation's largest collection of 19th century Italianate architecture. The area was the former home of Cincinnati's German-speaking residents and their many breweries. Thousands of cheering spectators watched as the parade made its first-ever trek to the new riverfront ballpark. From there, they entered through a center field gate to an ovation from the largest crowd, 51,702, to ever attend a baseball game in Cincinnati. The Pete Wagner Dixieland Band, the Roger Bacon High School Band, the Wright-Patterson Air Force Band, and the Queen City Drum and Bugle Corps provided the music for the festive atmosphere. For the last 50 years, the parade has taken the same route, and crowds have grown ever larger because of the proximity to the center of the city. 
not to mention the great teams of the 1970s that obviously sparked increased interest in the Reds. The next and final historical markers are 1985 and the introduction of Marge Schott, the first female to own the Reds. April 8th of that year was easily one of the most anticipated opening days ever. For fans, there were two primary reasons, Pete Rose and Marge Schott. Rose had returned to the Reds the previous August and was now a player manager chasing the base hit record of the legendary Ty Cobb. Schott, the owner of a car dealership empire, became the new owner of the team. Her love of the team was well known and she championed the traditions of opening day. Her pet St. Bernard, Shotzi, was practically a club mascot. When baseball commissioner Peter Uberoth received his invitation to the opener in 1985, he laughed when he saw it had come from Shotzi. The invitation included pictures of the dog in both a Reds cap and an Olympics hat, since Uberoth had organized the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. Shotzi's invitation read, quote, I'm keeping my paws crossed, unquote, that Uberoth would attend. Uberoth chuckled and accepted, noting he wanted to honor the Reds' first female owner. The media took note of the team's new energy with 285 press credentials issued to interested news outlets. Shortly after 7 a.m. on opening day, CBS Morning News interviewed Uberoth live from the lobby of the Hyatt Regency Cincinnati. Cold weather and snow were in the forecast, but Uberoth predicted a great opening day nonetheless. Shot gave a real shot in the arm to the party by encouraging fans to wear red, and the hotel lobby and streets outside were overflowing with crimson-covered bodies and scarlet faces. The whole town was wearing red, and that tradition has continued. Despite 39-degree temperatures, spectators were four deep along the 15-block route from Finley Market to Fountain Square. Elephants and horses, politicians and marching bands, and convertibles and dressed-up trucks clogged traffic for three hours. Streets were closed beginning at 10 o'clock a.m. and were opened only after the parade passed Fountain Square. With the full support of the club's new owner, the parade had never been more colorful. Kevin Lucan, who I mentioned before, and he is one of the longtime parade organizers, credits Marge for making the parade what has become today. The largest crowd, again, for a regular season game turned out to witness the historic occasion featuring shot, and in fact, the other dignitaries who were present were largely overlooked. The Roger Bacon band lined up and even spelled, quote, good luck Marge, unquote, in formation. A plane flew over the stadium with a banner arranged by the new owner. Quote, we're coming alive in 1985. Love, Marge, unquote. 
Uberoth then escorted Schott and her St. Bernard to center stage. Standing in front of the pitcher's mound, the first lady of the Reds delivered a high and outside pitch to catcher Dan Billardello. The spectators rose in unison to offer a prolonged standing ovation. Shot, attired in cream-colored pantsuit, a cranberry red sweater, and loafers waved gleefully to the crowd. On one side of her sweater, a button read, quote, I'm Red's hot, unquote. On the other was her name tag, as if she needed one. Enquirer reporter Tim Sullivan, one of the great writers from the past, wrote, quote, if it seems as if the season has become a sideshow, blame it on the lady with the dog and the guy with the Grecian formula. They've captured our hearts and most of the headlines. Today's standing room only sale can only be attributed then to the personal charisma of Marge, her manager Rose, and her mongrel, unquote. Marge had placed her mark on opening day, and the celebrations continued to get larger throughout her tenure. In 1992, an Enquirer editorial explained Schott's impact on the holiday. The editorial read, quote, Cincinnati winters pass slowly. The nights are long, the weather disagreeable, the landscape drab and lifeless. The great out of doors is anything but great. Suddenly it is spring. The tri-state begins to come alive again. And just like that, everything turns Cincinnati red. It is opening day, unquote. Now, unfortunately, in the mid-1990s, Mrs. Schott became mired in controversy and eventually was forced to sell the club. However, like Bancroft in the late 19th century, she had placed her mark on the celebrations that have only grown since she left the ownership circle. Now, I have to conclude by saying that Cincinnatians have been fortunate. Through all of the turmoil of world wars, economic disruptions, terrorism, we have enjoyed an extra holiday on our calendar thanks to Harry Wright and the original Red Stockings, along with those fans who were called Merry Cranks who supported the Red Stockings. We are forever in their debt for the joy they have brought to our lives and the lives of countless others. Today's episode provided an overview of our holiday. In coming episodes, we will explore the history in more detail from Frank Bancroft, the myths that surround the opener, famous first and other celebrations that have occurred to the local, national, and world events that have impacted Cincinnati's opening day party. I hope you have enjoyed this opening episode of Freaking Out About Opening Day. This is Randy Freaking signing off. And in the immortal words of Marty Brenneman, so long, everybody. <laughs>